You're not afraid of the dark, are you? Let's say we're a few shy.
phone you hold my tie You're running from the festival of both Never been singing out loud No, we've never been singing out loud So smooth we'll never leave the wild Well, you've never been a friend of mine You're so wild, I'll let it roll I'll let you bring your own soul Well, you are perfect, so am I
experimental music in school. Uh, I was at a co-educational boarding school um, in Yorkshire called Aquas and there was one wing which just had a lot of little pianos, I'm sorry, a lot of little rooms with pianos 
where people were supposed to go and practice their scales or whatever and I actually went and just uh, started to make music with the piano that expressed what I was feeling. I had had some piano lessons but in fact I was more interested in forgetting what I'd learnt already in, as a eight-year-old and rather just making the sounds that you know spoke to me and to my emotional state at that time and I think it's a great luxury in a sense not to have a musical education because it allows you to make a direct connection between your kind of heart and your soul and the sounds that you make whereas the more discipline you've had to employ or had employed on you to to learn the, the craft of, of, of musical technique, the more that actually delimits the sort of freedom of expression between, between your hand and your soul, if you know what I mean. In school we, we had a couple of concerts and our band was called Pulsing Vein, which some people would relate in some way to throwing gristle, but uh, it was kind of a, one of those coincidences. I'm sure that all of the staff were bemused by our concerts because that involved kind of tape recorders going backwards and cut-ups and things. Probably before we'd heard of William Burroughs or, or read about his experiments along those lines. Throbbing Gristle was my first band and, and, and Tichi came about because uh, I was part of a performance art collective called Coombe with Genesis and Cozy and we decided that the art world was too kind of up its own arsely and refined and we wanted to, to bring our message to young people who would be more willing to go to a concert than they would be to go to an art show and so that's why we started Robin Gristle. And we kind of finished Robin Gristle because we felt that it had become a pastiche to itself and we'd taken it as far as we wanted to take it without it becoming some kind of demon or beast that, that was uh, not totally within our control. So we finished that and various sort of different personal clashes and so on going on within the band, uh, which caused Chris and Cozy to, to um, set up their own thing. And Genesis and I wanted to, to work more in the world of of television and kind of power TV, but we didn't really have the technology at that time to certainly not to broadcast. We started to do some uh, pirate videos, of, you know, power underground kind of videos, and almost by accident we ended up doing music under the name of Psychic TV as well as doing TV under the name of Psychic TV, which was the original intention. And uh, John Balance, who I know as Jeff, and I were, were part of Psychic TV, the music cooperative, as was David Tibet and various other with other people who became subsequently famous. And it became clear to us that although we were kind of espousing a kind of free-thinking uh, type of philosophy, that Genesis at the time wanted to, wanted to uh, go further into the role of being a, a cult leader with the Temple of Psychic Youth, which was another of our mutual creations. And so, so Jeff and I left Psyche TV because we weren't comfortable with that and we started Coil in 83, I think, 1983. I, I was initially reluctant to, to start a third band because I wasn't sure how we could do something that was new, but gradually, and with the technology arriving of uh, Fairlight and so on, 
it became clear that we could do something that was new in that direction and Jeff was very keen not having done all that much to, to, to um, pursue a musical career. I suppose it is true that Throbbing Gristle and Coil were or continue to be influential in certain circles. What I hope the, the main influence of those bands is to show people that you don't necessarily need three chords to start a band, as, as they always used to say in the punk days, and that it didn't matter really what training you've had, as long as you have inspiration, and as long as you have willingness to work and willingness to, to make uh, editorial judgments about what you do, because the main, the main difficulty with people who, who want, want to make music that sounds like Robin Gristle or like Coil is that they don't make enough editorial judgments about what's good and on whether it could be better and how to make it better. So there's, you know, there are quite a lot of so-called industrial groups that I can't listen to because it seems like they haven't tried hard enough somehow, which is not so they're not good, but, but they're just not for me. Am I surprised about the legacy? Well, I don't know, really. Yeah, I suppose I am. I just did always seem to me that one should, you know, think of something that one wants to do and, and pursue it as far as one possibly can to, you know, make it as good as one possibly can. And that just seemed like obvious to me, but, but, um, I don't know. The, the nicest, the nicest thing about the legacy is is all the mail actually that, that, that we get and even with Coil for example we used to get loads and loads and loads and loads of, of emails and letters from people saying I'm totally positive I think I'm gonna die soon your music's made my life you know a bit more bearable and it, you know when you get those letters it's hard not to you know feel sort of humble and, and, and you know grateful that, that we were able to, to bring those that, you know, feeling of, of uh, relief or belonging or, or being a part of something greater than the individual. That, that, that's the best part of it, really. Coil went through many, many changes over 20 years. The changes came about partly as a result of being very easily bored by what we were doing and, and wanting to move on. We never really wanted to repeat, you know, any of our records and make another one that sounded similar to the last one. Maybe that's... That's another way to, to make sure that your records stay fresh, is never to do the same thing twice. Uh, and also the changes came about because of, of changes in our personality, you know, in our interests uh, and our needs and, and what have you. During the late 80s, uh, it's true to say that we went out clubbing a lot and certainly took a lot of ecstasy. And the main reason for that was I think we were struggling to find a kind of intimacy that didn't involve sexual contact as a consequence of the, of the AIDS. You know, from, from 84 to, through to 2000 odd, it, you know, intimacy was regarded as, you know, a bit, bit fear really. You know, whether there was a relationship between it and the idea of being truly uh, intimate with someone and the idea that that could kill you. And so, we were, so the, the summer of love and the whole ecstasy explosion in the late 80s was a way of, of trying to find that contact without, without uh, sexual contact, if you know what I mean. A consequence of, of our ecstasy use was that Jeff started to use alcohol to, to recover. Well, ecstasy is a drug that, that can be fabulous at the time that you're on it, but actually has increasingly long 
uh, you know, and a long time to recover from, and and Jeff started to drink uh, to excess when coming down, basically the, the day after and the day after the day after. And unfortunately, his use of alcohol, ex you know, continued to ex increase, and he found that he couldn't live without it or didn't want to live without it. And even when we weren't taking any drugs, which we didn't, we didn't take very many drugs after the early 90s, I don't think. So he became alcoholic and although he wasn't terribly pleased with the idea of being alcoholic or the actual practicality of it, <laughs> you know, the need to buy several bottles of wine to start with and then subsequently several bottles of vodka a day as things went on. Nevertheless, he still preferred the comfort that it gave him to the discomfort of not having it. He went into rehab a few times. The first time that, we were, that was relatively successful, he, was, he stayed off for about six months. He had also implants and stuff to discourage him from drinking. Excuse me. But without success. And, and so from the beginning of the 21st century onwards, when we started to tour, it was kind of a constant struggle between the, 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 the dominance of the booze or the dominance of, of his willpower to, to perform relatively straight and to perform well. I, I became kind of not only the sort of leader of the band, but also the nanny, you know, who had to look after him when he was drunk and stuff, which was quite boring. This came to a sort of a head, really, in around, uh, around 82, 83, I think. We went to have sushi and he announced that we were split up, we were no longer a couple. Which was in some way a relief for me, but in other ways, at the same time, nothing changed. He continued to live in, our, you know, in the house we shared and to need to be babysat and when he was drunk and to, uh, to you know, be drunk when he wanted to be drunk, which was most of the time. So, did his death come as a shock? Well, it, it, yes, it came as a shock, but it didn't come as a surprise. Obviously, you know, we've been together for a long time, and so it was a big, uh, big jump to find that, you know, I was alone again, or as it were. But uh, it didn't, certainly didn't come as a surprise, because uh, we've been telling him that if he didn't stop drinking, it was going to happen for a long time. He, you know, he leant out too far into, in his desire to look into the abyss. And, and if you do, if you do genuinely desire to look into the abyss, then then it's more or less inevitable. That, you know, if you don't take the proper precautions of hanging on, that you're going to fall. Uh, this is about Quail's dark ambient style. Well, I don't know. I just, I, I just have a very low threshold of boredom, you know, I, I, if, if some, sometimes you can put a record on and there's a drone or a rumble that goes on for a long time and it's fine and it serves its purpose and the music that I play now is relatively, con you know, more or less conventional, either it's like uh, Boards of Canada or it's like local kind of weird folk music or whatever, I, I don't know. It depends what you want your music for. If you want your music to just fill in the sort of gaps, then it's okay if it's a rumble for, for half an hour. But I, I personally find that boring. I like music to do a bit more. And so I can try and make it more interesting or to make do more unexpected things or whatever. I think it's just about the one threshold of boredom, really. I 
current, my current project, as you probably know, is the Threshold House Boys Choir, which I had discussed with Jeff, you know, even before his accident, and, and he thought it was a good idea. And that, as some of people may know, it doesn't really necessarily involve a conventional choir as such, and I've decided to do most of my vocals within the computer. If my vocalist crashes again, I'll have a backup. So that's what I'm working on, using all different kinds of voices. Some, some voices are sampled, some are totally you know, electronically generated, some are me, but manipulated. It starts to sound a bit more interesting than I do. <laughs> so that's what I'm working on. I have a project with um, Ivan Pavlov uh, of COH. Uh, he makes more kind of um, brutalist electronic kind of music, and, and we plan to work together next year, hopefully. But uh, I'm not saying more about that right now. The reason that I released the, the combined DVD and CD of, of the Threshold House Boys Choir was because bits and pieces of the video had started to appear on YouTube and, and in various other places that were, that were just sort of shot on people's phones at the two, two or three shows that I'd done where the video was played, including one in at the Brainwashed Festival in, uh, whenever it was, last year sometime. And, uh, I didn't want the, the first time that people saw the video to be in, in not very good quality and, and crappy handheld uh, off the screen reshot stuff. So I decided to, to release it as a, a you know as a proper thing. All the reviews that I've that I've seen and all of the, the comments that I've seen about this work have been overwhelmingly positive and and um, appreciate. I don't know whether to say that the, the you know it's a soundtrack to a film or whether. The, uh, the film is an accompaniment as a video that goes with the music. They, I don't, neither of them came first, really. They were both simultaneous. And so uh, it's hard to, to describe what kind of a work it is. It's, it, the footage is documentary, and it shows the Ginche Festival in, in the south of Thailand, which is designed basically to scare away malign spirits and to bring um, merit to the community but in doing the way that they do that is in relatively gory sort of ways a bunch of um, in this case sort of low class working class type kids go into trance and, and um, do various gory things putting metal through their cheeks and all that stuff and cutting their tongues with straight razors and things like that but what you will find is that although that sounds sort of horrifying and disgusting and heavy you'll find that the film that I made of it is actually quite uh, slow and beautiful and completative if there is such a word um, the music likewise takes you further towards the, the kind of spiritual state that I believe that these boys achieve for themselves as part of the ritual, which is a, a kind of elevated uh, state of, of um, what's the word, spirituality or whatever. The, the reason that I put the, the CD in the, in the package was because I wanted people to be able to listen to music without having to watch the film if they didn't want to, um, because it's not, not suitable for every occasion and I wouldn't necessarily encourage people to show it to their kids and so on. Uh, without you know due explanation and warning and so on, I think it's a you know work of, of, of beauty and calm and peace. But that's in contrast, in great contrast, to the actual appearance of the images, which is what's interesting about it for me and, and hopefully for other people too. The 8th of Naples 
uh, was a title that, that Jeff and Simon, uh, also known as Ossian, came up with. Simon used to work in a, in a porno store in, in Soho in London. The, there used to be an array of VHS tapes on the, on the counter that hunters could select. And the titles, you know, were, were handwritten on the spines of these tapes. And Jeff and Simon always used to make up imaginary titles for their own amusement of these gay hardcore porn films. And The Ape of Naples was one such title. I think actually Black Antlers was another. So, so uh, both of those titles originally were intended to be porn films, but, but ended up as coil albums instead. And after Jeff died, I decided that, um, that you know, there was this material that was outstanding that had never been on a coil album that was developed mainly for, for live shows, but also, you know, ultimately to be released as a record. And so I mixed that material uh, in the months after his death, and, and I think that accounts possibly for the intensity and the, the, the fact that people find it kind of so, so moving. Some of the tracks were from the session that we recorded in New Orleans at Trent Reznor's studio. For a while I lived in Los Angeles and at a party once, Trent and his manager said, you know, we're putting the studio in New Orleans, why don't you come down and use it? So I said, that would be lovely. <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, we were the only band that they didn't actually charge proper studio rates for. I'm pretty sure they charged Marilyn Manson, you know, the going rate. Quite a it for free, which I'm glad to say, because we could never have afforded it if we'd had to pay. The music that we made at the time in, in New Orleans was, we, we felt it was kind of infected slightly with a New Orleans-y kind of rock distortion sound that we weren't subsequently very keen on. And there was just something about songs that we recorded there directly that we felt we weren't happy with or that we didn't. We didn't know why we didn't want to release them, but we knew we didn't. When I came to remix or to, to produce the Ape of Naples, suddenly they seemed to be more pertinent or apt. And so that, that, that tended to make the album more intense also. I have lived in Thailand for several stretches of three or four, five, six, even six months at a time in the preceding few years even before Jeff died and I knew ultimately that I wanted to live here because it's just a much more pleasant place to live than England. There are lots of things I like about Thailand, not least the fact that I feel that the skin that separates the real world from the world of the supernatural of, of uh, spirits, ghosts, all kinds of, of uh, creatures or visions you know, from, from beyond this plane of existence. The skin is much thinner here in Thailand than it is in the UK. Generally speaking, in the UK, ghosts and visions of those kinds of, I don't know, they're, they're, they're kind of removed, they're lonely, they're, they're separate, they're mostly invisible to most people. Whereas here, you can talk to any taxi driver and he will tell you about ghosts that he's had in his cab. After the tsunami, there was a big phenomenon amongst the taxi drivers in Bangkok. Um, many, many taxi drivers reported picking up Westerners from the train station or from, from um, hotels, whatever, wanting to go to the airport and driving them to the airport and finding on arrival at the terminal that the, their cabs were empty. And they, all the taxi drivers would, would swear blind and tell you that, that it was because of the Westerners that had died 
in a tsunami who were trying to get home, or the ghosts or their spirits were trying to get home by, by going to the airport. So, so take that with this pinch of salt or at face value as you like. I don't like to become inebriated just to see across the divide. I don't, you know, in the way that, that Jeff used to, to. I don't need to, you know, drink. I don't need to take drugs particularly to, to see across. And, and that's one, that's the main thing that I like. Apart from that, the weather's gorgeous, the food's gorgeous, the people are gorgeous. Uh, and it's about a quarter of the price of living in England, so. I don't think I would say that Coyle was a gay band as such, although obviously nearly all of the people that ever worked with us were gay or homosexual. But we didn't identify with, you know, the, as, as Mark Holman said at his concert at the Wilton Music Hall, we might be friends of Dorothy, but we weren't friends of Elton. Uh, which is kind of facetious, but it's also sort of true in the sense that we didn't we didn't identify with that that lifestyle. I think it's I think what we were was first and foremost was outsiders. It's a great advantage seeing things from the outside because you don't have to take everything, you know, all of the prejudices of the mainstream to ignore all of them, and that, that, that spreads to not just about sexuality, but about either food or music or clothes or anything. It's, it's a fantastic advantage to be outside, but at the same time, you know, you lose the protection of being in the middle. But if given the choice, I chose to be outside.
I hope you guys are enjoying that brainwash radio out there, people. I hope you're enjoying that brainwash radio out there, people. I hope you're enjoying that brainwash radio Hollywood out there, people. I hope you're enjoying that brainwash radio Hollywood out there, people. To your friends. To your loved ones. Play while you're having that, that doggy style. Spanking that ass. Pounding that, you know. In between. Stuff. You're on the brain. Get some.
Audio Literature presents Jack Kerouac, The Dharma Bones, read by Alan Ginsberg. Hopping a freight out of Los Angeles at high noon one day in late September 1955, I got on a gondola and lay down with my duffel bag under my head and my knees crossed and contemplated the clouds as we rolled north to Santa Barbara. It was a local and I intended to sleep on the beach at Santa Barbara that night and catch either another local assembly of Bispo the next morning or the first class freight all the way to San Francisco at 7 p.m. Somewhere near Camarillo, where Charlie Parker demanded and relaxed back into normal health, a thin old little bum climbed into my gondola as we headed into the siding to give a train right away when he looked surprised to see me there. He established himself at the other end of the gondola and lay down facing me with his head on his own miserably small back and said nothing. By and by, we blew the highball whistle after the eastbound freight had smashed through on the main line. We pulled out and the air got colder and the fog began to blow from the sea over the warm valleys of the coast. Both the little bum and I, after unsuccessful attempts to huddle on the cold steel and wrap around, got up and paced back and forth and jumped and clapped arms at each our end of the gun. Pretty soon we headed into another siding in a small railroad town and I figured I needed a poor boy of cocaine wine to complete the cold dust runs of Santa Barbara. Will you watch my pack while I run over there and get a bottle of wine? Sure thing. I jumped over the side and ran across Highway 101 to the store and bought, beside wine, a little bread and candy. I ran back to my freight train, which had another 15 minutes to wait in the now warm, sunny scene. The little bum was sitting cross-legged at his end before a pitiful repast of one can of sardines. I took pity on him and went over and said, How about a little wine to warm you up? Maybe you'd like some bread and cheese with your sardines? Sure thing. He spoke from far away inside a little neat voice box, afraid or unwilling to assert himself. I bought the cheese three days ago in Mexico City before the long, cheap bus trip to cross Zacatecas and Durango and Chihuahua, 2,000 miles to the border at El Paso. He ate the cheese and bread and drank the wine with gusto gratitude. I was pleased. I reminded myself of a line in the Diamond Sutra that says, Practice charity without holding in mind any conceptions about charity. For charity, after all, is just a word. I was very devout in those days, and was practicing my religious devotions almost to perfection. Since then, I've become a little hypocritical about my lip service and a little tired and cynical. Because now I'm grown so old and neutral. But then I really believe in the reality of charity and kindness and humility and zeal and neutral tranquility of wisdom and ecstasy. And I believe that I was an old-time bhikkhu in modern clothes wandering the world, usually the immense triangular arc of New York to Mexico City to San Francisco, in order to turn the wheel of the true meaning, or Dharma, and gain merits for myself as a future Buddha, awakener, and as a future hero in paradise. I had not met Jackie Ryder yet. I was about to next week, or heard anything about Dharma Bums, although at this time I was a perfect Dharma Bum myself and considered myself a religious wanderer. 
the little bum in the gondola solidified all my belief by warming up to the wine and talking and finally whipping out a tiny slip of paper which contained a prayer by St. Teresa, announcing that after her death she will return to the earth by showering up with roses from heaven forever for all living creatures. Where did you get this? I asked. Oh, I cut it out of a reading room magazine in Los Angeles a couple of years ago. I always carry it near me. And you squat in boxcars and read it? Most every day. He talked not much more than this. Didn't amplify on the subject of St. Teresa. Was very modest about his religion and told me little about his personal life. He is the kind of thin, quiet, little bum nobody pays much attention to, even in Skid Row, let alone Main Street. If a cop hustled him off, he hustled and disappeared. And if yard dicks were around in big city yards when the freight was pulling out, chances are they never got a sight of the little man hiding in the weeds and hopping on in the shadow. When I told him I was planning to hop the zipper first class freight train the next night, he said, Ah, ah, ah.
Ah, you mean the midnight ghost? Is that what you call the zipper? You must have been a railroad man on that railroad. I was. I was a brakeman on the SP. Well, we bummers call it the midnight ghost, because when you get on it in L.A. and nobody sees it till you get to San Francisco in the morning, that thing flies so fast.
Slow 